0: But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? Each week, we dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger.
2: Welcome to Sports Business Radio. I'm executive producer Brian Griggs, and this week I've got a great best-of show in store for you. Some of the greats, one you haven't heard yet, all mixed into a great hour of radio. So stick around, because next, in segment two, we'll kick it off with Brian's conversation with Forrest Lucas. He's the president of Lucas Oil Properties. Then in segment three, an interview that is new to most of you, Brian talks with Jason Sobel of the Golf Channel, talks Tiger Woods and the world of golf. Very good stuff there. And then segment four, we'll wrap it up with Brian's conversation with Rick Bucher from a while back. He is the ESPN senior writer and covers the NBA from front to back. That's the SBR best of coming our way, so stay close for that. A couple of other notes, you can download the podcast of this and other SBR shows on our website at sportsbusinessradio.com. Become a fan of us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at SBRadio. Stick around. Forrest Lucas kicks off this SBR best of coming up next. This is Sports Business Radio.
0: You're listening to the best of sports business radio. More with Brian after this.
3: It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything Is On The Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your
0: specific needs.
3: Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com.
0: This is Sports Business Radio.
3: My guest is Forrest Lucas. He's the 69-year-old entrepreneur and president of Lucas Oil Products, one of the world's largest makers of automotive lubricants, additives, and greases. The company brings in more than $150 million annually, selling more than 100 products across the United States and abroad. Forrest, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you?
4: Good, good. Good to talk to you.
3: So, you've got an incredible story. Uh, you were working two jobs trying to build your own trucking company. You were fed up with equipment breaking down, and you realized that you needed to develop better oil products. Tell us the story of how Lucas Oil Company was born.
4: Well, it's a little bit like that. We had our own fleet of old trucks and constantly having problems. So, I thought there got to be some kind of better lubricant. So, I started <laughs> buying stuff that other people were making, trying this and that. And pretty much none of it worked, but uh he got me interested enough to start studying it, and um uh, I made some stuff that was working pretty good and then I blundered on to my my secret attitude that it really made it good and i uh, I actually researched back and found out you know the the guy who really made it to start with made it for all the things I was using it for, so I knew I was on the right track and uh That's still pretty much got the same formulas. We have the the stuff made uh, for us. Nobody else has it. You'd have to change all the equipment. All the big companies would have to change all the equipment around to make it in there. So it's hard to to work with. But once we get it in there, it's instructable. That's what I'll throw apart from everybody else's. You've got
3: a lot of diverse interests. I, I've read up on you, and obviously uh, you're heavily involved in motorsports. Your son, I see, is the driver of the Geico Lucas Oil Top Fuel Dragster. You're going to be in Bristol this weekend to watch him with your wife, Charlotte. And, um, you know, obviously you paid a lot of money for the naming rights for lucas oil stadium where the indianapolis colts play there in indianapolis how did you get all these diverse interests have you always been interested in sports or did this kind of come to you in the last uh, 10
4: 20 years well i really got us into racing uh as a as a medium for advertising mm-hmm. you know i do want to have a lucas oil i want to be a cool product it's great for race cars and it, it makes the oil real slick and Wear out proof, it stands up to real high temperature, so it was perfect for race cars. But I wanted people to to think it was cool, and I had to have some way to get people to look at it, because it's a brand new product. We didn't have any money for television advertising or anything like that at the time, so I made these little sets of gears. I don't know, you've probably seen them at auto parts stores. Return turn one's got plain oil, and one's got all that stabilizer mixed with it. Right. So, uh, to get people to look at that, it, this is back in the time when people still took their Saturday night car to the racetrack on an open trailer. You could not see an old race car going down the street without looking at it. So zing. I go out uh I sponsor a little old spring car, seventeen year old boy still drives for us and matter of fact he's a distributor for us in New Zealand right now. Uh painted all up real pretty Lucas oil. Got in old. Supercomp dragster and did the same with it and there I had the top and bottom pictures set on the counter. People looked at the race cars, read a little about it and ask the counter guy if the stuff really works. Yeah it does and there we go. That's it. That's a, that's in a, in one minute <laughs> <laughs> it all started. That's how we got started with the racing and then and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. We started you know, all the all the auto parts changed. We're in the racing in some way or another. So uh in drag racing, so that's when I that we'll, we'll want to be as big as we can. And as the company grew, we had more money to spend. We got bigger cars and old top-fuel cars and sponsored the races themselves. So we made racing work.
3: Yeah, so, and you even got, like, a, a television production facility where you're doing hours upon hours of motorsports television and video. So, I mean, this is a big operation for you.
4: Yeah, they uh, we do over 300 hours of... Uh, Racing television uh each year right now, and that's probably be getting bigger but uh that we made that work we had this concept you know that we wanted to, I want to have us in the shows themselves so we couldn't get uh couldn't get taken out if somebody would to change channels and come back to, we ought to be in the show, so uh I told my vice president we need to start looking for some little week racing series that we can that we can uh. Buy or build, so we started doing that, and then had an opportunity to hire the people who were making our commercials for us. So I said, "Send so these guys over here to uh, Urbandale and see if they can tape a race." So sure enough, they could. So that's when we started a production company, and then that took off real fast. We had these brilliant guys who built our own production trucks and production studio all in house, and. Uh, and everybody knows somebody in that business, so everybody's telling everybody, here's this great place to work. So we were able to pick up some really, really good production people. Things just keep on growing. Now we've got these other sponsors that we brought in because we had more that we needed for ourselves. So let's sell some of this stuff uh, to some other people. So conversely, now we have Team Lucas, which is, uh, is a company where people can come and buy time when they're in the show.
3: That's great. We're joined by Forrest Lucas. He's the president of Lucas Oil Products. Forrest, for a lot of people, including myself, you know, I had heard of Lucas Oil Products, but I didn't really pay full attention to what you were doing until you did the naming rights for the Home of the Colts. uh, Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis, 20-year deal, $122 million. What led you to want to do a naming rights sponsorship for the Home of the Colts? And I know there's a lot of other events that take place there as well.
4: Well, there is. That's what makes it beautiful. There's a lot of events going on there. It is definitely the nicest one in the country and uh I'll tell you the truth, we we were doing a lot of racing but I knew there was a lot of people who were not race fans. We were still not really well known to a lot of people. In certain areas of the country we were or in certain areas of the country we were not. So I was just kind of had my Eyes and ears open for something if something came along. I was not expecting it to be anything that big, but just, just watching and here it come. You know, we were already sponsoring the, the RCA dome. We had some sponsorship inside, nothing like, like this, but, uh, and the Colts came to us and said, Hey, would you be interested in this? And my first thought was, No, that's a crazy high. I, I'd never be able to afford that. Right. You know, driving home about an hour later, and I got to thinking about it. Well, I don't know how much it really does cost, and I need to find out more about it. So I set up a meeting with them, and we, Bob Patterson and uh, Tom Fredrickson, we sat down and talked to them, and they made us a proposal. We worked it out, and that's what we got.
3: You were saying you've seen a spike in your business since that naming right still has been done?
4: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it worked. It, it worked. Everybody knew. Us. I'm pretty much after that uh it'd be very very hard to find somebody now who has't heard of the Lucasaw stadium at
3: least no you're exactly right, I think it was great, and for me, you know i'm not a huge motorsports guy, but I know you from that naming rights deal, so I fit into the category of people that uh I know a lot more about you because of that naming rights deal. Last question for you, I see that you 've got uh the Colts motorcycle and it drives around at the Colts games, and you guys helped uh put that together that's really cool. I like that
4: well that that we had that built uh by uh, Milwaukee Iron. Uh, it's two one hour shows on uh, television on Discovery Channel. They built that bike. It was like, the most famous bike in the, in the country because it was almost no sidecars. They showed that show over and over and over again. But we repainted it Colts Blue, and uh, every home game we have some dignitary or some uh, some special person of some kind gets a ride out in it, and we sell it to the Cherries. Uh, let some of the around yourself every every home game it leaves the team out and then we use it for a lot of uh just trade shows and stuff sit around because people around here all know it
3: that's great i like it you've got a great story you've done an amazing job of activating your name and your product around sports whether it's motorsports or uh the colts home stadium so congratulations on that and i really appreciate you taking time to join us on sports business radio and i wish you continued success
4: well, thank you very much. It's it fun being on your with you, and uh, good luck with what you're doing there, and we'll keep on doing our part.
3: Thanks, Forrest. Take care.
0: Bye
4: bye.
3: That's Forrest Lucas. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
0: Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com SBRadio. Yeah, we'll remember this forever. I didn't know here. I like you're one, never one. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner
3: of the NBA.
4: It is always a pleasure, Brian.
3: Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the Bowl Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints.
2: Pleasure to be with you guys.
3: Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Folster. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian,
0: appreciate it. Glad to to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com. And subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And stay connected to the business side of sports. Only with Sports Business Radio to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger.
3: I'm joined on the phone right now by Jason Sobel of the Golf Channel, a great follow on Twitter, at Jason Sobel GC. Jason, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks for joining me. So everyone's talking about Tiger Woods and Steve Williams breaking up. Are you surprised?
1: Am I surprised? That's a good question. Uh, no, uh, I guess I'm a little surprised at the timing right now. And I guess any a guy – Uh, separates from his caddy of 12 years that he's had so much success with, it's gotta be a little bit of a surprise, but... No, I certainly wasn't shocked by any means.
3: You know, I'm someone who has followed Tiger Woods closely, like yourself, and um, I've got some inside access to some of his inner circle at times. And it's interesting to me, Jason, that the two people that have remained a constant in his life is Agent Mark Steinberg and his publicist, Glenn Greenspan. And I look at the two of them, and they've enabled Tiger over and over again. It seems like Tigers remove people who don't say, yes, sir, Tiger, from his life.
1: You can look at it that way, um, although I, I don't know that those guys that are necessarily saying yes, sir, to everything either. Um, you know, I, it, it's so hard. The inner circle is so tight with Tiger Woods, um, you know, and, and you say or do one wrong thing and you're out. And, and this isn't anything new. This is something we've seen for a long, long time, going back to his first agent, his first swing coach, his first caddy. And, and Tigers shown that throughout his camp over the course of his career. And these guys, you know, you start talking a little bit, um, you know, and maybe even with your actions and start doing something that he doesn't necessarily approve of, and you're going to be out.
3: You just tweeted at Jason Sobel GC, kind of ironic that Tiger was divorced from Stevie Williams after the caddy wasn't faithful to him and started seeing another player. I chuckled when I read that. Didn't Tiger sign off on Stevie working with Adam Scott?
1: tournament, yes, uh, and look, this is pure speculation, this is just sort of rumors that I've heard and, and what I think is going on, you try to put together pieces of the puzzle with these kind of things, and, and because Tiger's inner circle is so tight, you never really quite figure out everything that's going on. That said, from what I gather, Tiger Woods gave Steve permission to work with Adam Scott for the U.S. Open. Uh, a few weeks later, Tiger announced he wasn't going to play in the AT&T National, Next thing you knew, Steve was also on the bag for Adam Scott once again, where he finished in third place at the event that Tiger actually serves as host. And Tiger just had had enough. And, you know, I think the original acquiescence from Tiger Woods was not a, yeah, go ahead, go for it. It was a, yeah, go ahead, go for it if you want. And I don't think he was very optimistic about having his caddy work for another player during his absence because of injury. So, Guys break up with caddies all the time. Just this year we've seen Martin Keimer, Paul Casey, uh, Francesco Molinari, Darren Clark, who won the Open last week, Dustin Johnson, who came in second place. They all have new caddies on the bag. They've all found some kind of success afterwards. And you've got to look at that and say, well, you know, if these guys are finding success after going to new caddies, It's not necessarily the worst thing in the world all the time.
3: We're joined by Jason Sobel of The Golf Channel. It's got to be a lot of money that Steve Williams made working with Tiger Woods over the course of his 12-year relationship. They won 13 majors, I think 140-plus tournaments. I mean, we're talking over a few million dollars, right?
1: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, Steve Williams gave a million dollars to charity in in New Zealand a couple years back. So that tells you that he's at least got that much to give away let alone all the money that he's kept over the years. And he's got sponsorship deals himself, just like golfer would, and, and he's going to keep those, at least for the time being. And uh, Stevie's fine. He's never been a guy that's motivated by money. I've heard a lot of people say uh, Stevie's going to go out and sign a $10 million deal to write a tell-all book about Tiger Woods. Even if he knows things that nobody else knows, I, I just don't see signing a book deal and getting money out of it being a motivating factor for Steve Williams. Now, if he feels... Uh, some ill will against Tiger Woods and sort of wants to get back at him right now after the guy was really his best friend, he was his best man at his wedding, then then maybe that happens. But I don't think this is a monetary-fueled move by any means.
3: Jason, is this a case where Tiger Woods has someone else in mind to be his caddy in the future, or he had just had enough with Steve and said, you know what, I don't know who my caddy is going to be, but I'm severing ties?
1: he's got to have somebody in place. And I wrote a call about that yesterday for golfchannel.com. I, I can't imagine that a guy whose every move is watched and criticized and analyzed like Tiger Woods is, is doesn't have somebody already lined up. I, I've already spoken to a caddy who uh, I asked him, you know, have, have you received a call from Tiger Woods? And he said, no. And I said, well, you know what? How about a text message or an email or anything else? and I got silence. So uh, he's definitely out there looking already, whether he has that guy in mind already and knows who it will be. I, I kind of think he does. Uh, I just can't imagine that Tiger Woods is going forward without having somebody else. And, and that guy probably is sitting back right now watching all the TV news, reading the newspapers and the magazines and the internet sites, and saying, wow, nobody knows it's me, but I'm going to be the next caddy for Tiger.
3: Jason, I know Tiger is scheduled to play in Nota Begay's charity uh fundraiser he's not scheduled to play competitive golf anytime soon do you think we're going to see him again this year
1: i do think so but i I don't have a a real inkling either way quite honestly i've stopped playing the guess when tiger will play game just because uh i quite honestly i'm not sure if tiger woods knows right now so for us to speculate and try to figure out when he's going to play next I, i don't think tiger knows uh, he has said that he will not tee it up again until he's 100% healthy. He said in the past that he hasn't been 100% healthy since he was 12 years old. So that time may never come. I think he was thoroughly embarrassed by what he did at the Players' Championship when he came out, shot a 42 on the front side at TBC Sawgrass, uh, withdrew from the tournament and had to leave and had the injury. You don't go out and shoot 42 as the former number one player in the world and a 14-time major winner. That's embarrassing, and I think – more than the injury, Tiger Woods wants to come back when his game is ready so he doesn't go out there and shoot six over par for nine holes again.
3: You know, people debate on shows like this all the time. Is Tiger going to win another major? Is he even going to win another tournament? Where do you see Tiger Woods going in the future?
1: I still haven't passed him Jack Nicholas. I really do. Wow. Uh, I, go back to, I go back to a conversation that I had last year with Padraig Harrington. and This is just uh, a little feature I was working on, a little column. Uh, where I was talking about all the players who were turning 40. And at that time, Ernie Els had just turned 40. Jim Furyk was turning 40 that week. I think it was at the Players' Championship last year. Phil Mickelson was on the verge of turning 40. And Patrick Harrington actually turns 40 uh, very soon this summer. And I asked him what a golfer's prime age is. And he looked at me in with a big smile. He said, 40. And I said, well, you've already got three major championships. Does that mean that you haven't yet reached your prime And he goes, you got it, exactly. And I always look at that and I say, you know, granted, Tiger Woods, his best years are very likely behind him. I think he's played his best golf. I don't think he will dominate like he has in the past. But he's only 35 years old. He still has a lot of golf left to be played. I I think that if you're writing off Tiger Woods right now, five, ten years down the road, you're going to look back at what you're saying right now and what you're talking about, and you're going to say, boy, did I look foolish because that guy – He came back with a vengeance, and he played really well afterwards, and I can't believe I ever thought he was done.
3: We're joined by Jason Sobel from the Golf Channel. Jason, so Rory McIlroy has emerged. There's some really great young players coming up through the ranks in golf, Um, great European players. Where does Tiger fit in the mix going forward? I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like he's going to come out and and dominate going forward.
1: I don't see him dominating. What I do see is – we could be looking at a golden age for golf in the next half decade to a decade. And what I mean by that is, yes, we have Rory McIlroy, who's already won the U.S. Open. We have guys like Ricky Fowler, who's done everything but win so far. And, and Mateo Manassero who's 18 years old and has a few European tour wins. And Rory Shikawa, who's played well. And Jason Day, who has two runner ups at majors already this year at the age of 23. There's so many good, young, talented players out there who are capable of winning and com- competing and contending earlier in their careers right now that if we get them on the right track, we have them playing well, which we do right now, all of a sudden Tiger Woods comes back, he starts playing the kind of golf that we've come to expect from him for a long time, and now all of a sudden we have sort of a clash of the generations where Tiger's playing his best golf, the young guns are playing their best golf, and it's all bets are off. Let's see what's going on at these major championships where we could really see some sparks fly. I, I really, truly believe that could happen over the next five years.
3: That'd be a lot of fun if it did happen, and I'm sure golf would love that. How great is the Darren Clark story? I mean, what a, what a tremendous story. 150 to 1 in some parlors, and uh, 42 years old wins his first major. Just terrific.
1: It really is, and he's been through so much in his life and his career. He had some very dark days, obviously. His, his wife, Heather, passed away due to breast cancer about five years ago, and Uh, he's battled back, he's worked on his game, he's maybe never been the hardest worker out there, but everybody likes Darren Clark, whether it's the other big-name players, and he got text messages from Tiger Woods afterwards, and Phil Mickelson talked about how much he liked and respected Darren Clark, and when you have those two guys who both like you, you know you're doing something right, because they, they don't agree on too much. The fact that everybody in golf likes the guy, everybody was rooting for him, yes, the other guys on the leaderboard wanted to win for themselves, but If they couldn't do it, they were very happy that Darren Clark did.
3: Yeah, I mean, you saw after the tournament guys stuck around on the 18th green and they literally wanted to give him a hug and shake his hand and say congratulations. You don't see that very often.
1: No, you don't. But everybody likes Darren Clark, and I think everyone wanted to not only give him a handshake and a hug, but wanted to hoist a pint with him afterwards too.
3: Yeah, pint of Guinness. Jason Sobel from the Golf Channel. Thank you so much. Follow him on Twitter, at Jason Sobel GC. Really appreciate you taking the time to join me this morning.
0: You guys, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. This is the best of SBR. Back with more after this.
3: Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Well, I'm dusting off my golf clubs and looking forward to enjoying the gorgeous Oregon summer weather on the golf course. Like many of you, I'm on a budget. I want to tee it up when it's convenient for my schedule, and I enjoy playing golf courses that deliver a private golf club experience. That's why I want to tell you about the Ghost Pass at Pumpkin Ridge Golf Club. The Ghost Pass is Oregon's premier frequent player program that allows you to play the world-renowned Ghost Creek Golf Course for over half off of the regular greens fees. And with your Ghost Pass, you can make your tee times 14 days in advance. The Ghost Pass program sets itself apart by offering a competitive tournament program, which includes one exclusive Ghost Pass event at Witch Hollow. The Ghost Pass is available for only $150, and here's the best part. When you sign up for the Ghost Pass, you'll receive a complimentary round of golf valued at $150, so you literally can't lose when you purchase the Ghost Pass. Go online to PumpkinRidge.com and sign up for the Ghost Pass today. I'll see you on the
0: links. This is Sports Business Radio.
3: My guest is Rick Buecher. He's a friend of the show. ESPN senior writer, covers the NBA. You can find him on Twitter, at Rick Buecher. Rick, how are you? I am good, Brian. How are you? Good. I know you're very, very busy. NBA playoffs, it's your time of year. Um, let's talk about the playoffs before we get into the collective bargaining agreement. Top storylines for you. One thing for me is, you know, I'm looking at the Lakers. Obviously, they're back-to-back defending champions, and they just don't look right. Kobe Bryant didn't look right in his last game. What are the top storylines for you in the playoffs so far?
5: Uh n- Number one, just uh, w- whether... He- Youth is going to be served, uh, whether it's the Lakers or the Boston Celtics or the, uh, the old guard, uh, the teams built on experience, but old legs. Are they gonna, is that experience going to win out? Or are we going to see the Chicago Bulls or the Miami Heat or the Oklahoma City Thunder, uh, come through and, uh, overcome their collective lack of experience and win simply because of their uh, their energy and their greater athleticism, by and large, in the playoffs, experience uh, and execution have been served ahead of athleticism and energy. But in this particular year, they're, uh the 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 favorites that are the old guard are so beaten down and have sh- have showed to be so vulnerable that I-, I just wonder whether we're going to see that uh, that tried and true. Uh, standard, uh, changed and, uh, and, and tested here. Um, and, and then the other part is still just, you know, the, the, the year long, uh, experiment that has been the Miami Heat. Um, they have not always looked good, um, throughout the course of the season. Um, they're not built like a, a traditional, uh, championship team. But, uh, because of the vulnerability of, of so many of these teams, I just wonder whether, uh, the, objective of uh, LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh coming together, whether that could actually be realized this year.
3: Yeah, you know what's funny about the Heat, Rick, is it seems like before the season, you know, they had their pomp and circumstance in Miami, and a lot of people were ready to anoint them Champions, yeah. and yeah. now it's like it's almost like they're under the radar. People are not expecting that they're going to win it this year, but they're playing yeah. pretty well. Granted, they're playing Philadelphia, but they're playing pretty well. Do you think that maybe they sneak in under the radar to the Eastern Conference Finals, and then who knows what happens?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's it's intriguing. I, I look, I look at the way that they've played, uh, even against Philadelphia. They get so much out of transition. But uh, the one element that is, that is very impressive and it's a hallmark of, uh, of, of championship teams is how they play defense. And they are the second best uh, defensive team to Chicago uh, in the league as far as defensive field goal percentage. And when you look at uh, the ability to go to a LeBron James or a Dwayne Wade in terms of scoring, uh, I, I just I, I see the potential. They, they don't have the depth. Uh, they, they still have a lot of holes, but I look around and quite honestly, I, you know, every team has holes in uh, you know, the one the one team that uh, in, in that I still believe can play a lot better is uh, uh, are the Lakers. I, I believe that we haven't seen their best. I believe that, you know, this is just a byproduct of them going to uh, a fourth straight finals uh, knowing that they are trying to get to a fourth straight finals and that's just a physical beat down beat down a mental beat down that nobody in the modern era has done so i don't expect that we are going to see their best until They absolutely have to give it because they just, they don't have any extra energy to expend.
3: Yeah, some that people aren't bringing up with the Lakers is think of their schedule the last few years. So they've played in the finals, so they're playing deep into the season. And then you've got their two best players, Kobe and Pau Gasol, who played in the Olympics a few years ago. And they've played, you know, extended periods of time. They've got a, a lot of mileage on those tires, so to speak.
5: Absolutely and Lamar Odom did it last summer although for Lamar I honestly believe that the experience for him was 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 a positive one it's one of one of the reasons he was the sixth man of the year but uh w- without question um you know Kobe has been has been playing year round and he's clearly not the same player anymore and so I, I see more than ever um, when when Andrew Bynum is a force offensively and defensively, and this to me is the is the great hope. The way I saw him play in Game Two against the Hornets, uh, he was he was poised, he was aggressive, uh, he 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 did not look like uh, he was having any knee issues. When he is that lively, uh, he makes up for a multitude of sins. Uh, he can deliver the kind of energy that they're missing from these other guys. So. Um, that, that is where, uh, that's the whole card for, for the Los Angeles Lakers. And, and I, I will say this, I do under, I, what I, what I respect about Kobe at this point is that he understands where he's at and he's trying to utilize these other pieces. Uh, A lot of people bring up the statistics that, uh, you know, that when he takes, I don't know what it is, 20 plus shots or whatever it is that, uh, when he dominates the offense, that, uh, that they, they don't win as often and they're not as good. Well, Yes, um but then people immediately make the presumption that that's because well Kobe's just being selfish. No, Kobe does that when Pal Gasol and Lamar Odom and those other pieces are not aggressive. He's not going to sit around and wait. He'll he'll take over if nobody else is uh is, is being aggressive. But if those guys are are attacking and they are they are being aggressive, he's more than happy to give up the ball and share it at this point because he knows he knows he has a long road a- a- ahead of him. And I just I remember talking to him after Game Seven of the NBA Finals last year. He's and and we he said, "Can we sit down and do this?" And he's never he's never asked to do that. And I, I was doing an interview for for uh, ESPN Radio, and we sat down and I said, "You you look exhausted." He goes, "I've never been this tired in my life." Wow, uh, which says a lot when you think about uh, the training that Kobe Bryant has put
3: into the game. We're joined by ESPN's NBA senior reporter Rick Bucher. Rick, playoffs are all well and good. It's been a tremendous year on the court. TV ratings up big time. Um, business is good for the NBA, but... As we all know, the collective bargaining agreement is soon to be expiring. I'm not encouraged by what I continue to hear. I know you're close to the conversations as well. We know that you know the BRI, the basketball-related income, needs to be adjusted. We know the owners want the players to take a big pay cut, the number that had been out there previously, $800 million across the board. The owners have said this economic model does not work for us. Going forward, what are you hearing? Do you still think we're going to have a work stoppage?
5: Oh, there's no, uh, there's no question we're going to have a work stoppage. Just a question of, uh, are we going to miss games and how many games we're we going to miss? Technically, if we don't have a deal in place uh, by July 1st, that, uh, that then then a lockout begins, and once that lockout begins, they they don't get back to negotiating until September, uh, and then if they don't get something done uh, in in the first couple of weeks of September then we're more than likely to miss games. The the owners, uh, the the essence of it is that the owners are asking for such drastic cuts for just such drastic changes. I mean to the point where the the top guaranteed salary would be 11 million dollars a year. That's that's more than uh that's less than half of, of what guys are getting as guarantees now, uh, they want to roll back 30% of existing contracts. I just don't see any way, shape, or form that the that the players uh, agree to a deal that severe until they start missing paychecks, until they suddenly realize, wow, they're they're really not going to budge. They're going to ask for this, or maybe something worse, and that doesn't happen until November 15th. So. I just, I find it very, uh, I find it highly, highly unlikely that, uh, the players are not going to come to terms with the new economic reality, uh, until it starts hitting them in the pocketbook and they literally are looking at it and saying, wow, I'm, I'm losing money now, money that I may never get back, and the owners are more than willing to miss this entire year. They can afford it, but I certainly can't.
3: Rick, we've seen the NFL Players Union use the tactic of decertifying. Do you yeah. see any scenario where Billy Hunter and the NBA Players Association says, "You know what? Seems like it worked for the NFL yeah. players. It's really our only option." I mean, I don't think the players have any leverage at all. Do you think that the players go, "You know what? We're going the NFL path and we're going to decertify"?
5: I, I don't. I don't see. Uh, I don't see that as a uh, as a realistic possibility because. The, um, the difference between the NFL and the NBA is that the NFL, they get all the money up front. Uh, it's all, uh, they have contracts, but the only guaranteed part is the bonuses. Um, for the NBA to decertify, it means all the existing guaranteed money goes away. And, uh, never mind the LeBron James's and the Chris Bosch's and and the Dwayne Wades and, uh, and the Kobe Bryant's who have, you know, would be losing, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars that are guaranteed now, but those mid-range guys, the guys that are you know have guaranteed contracts uh, of thirty million or so, they'll never stay, they're they're giving all that up uh, with the the very good likelihood that they never see it again. I just I don't see guys willing to 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 throw all that into the pot uh, to gain leverage collectively. Uh, that's the big difference. The NFL, the guys who 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 uh, the players have the money that they were going to get, by and large. They know that their their contracts are uh, written in <laughs> in watercolor, essentially, because they're not guaranteed. Uh, that, that's the big difference.
3: We've got just a few minutes left with Rick Buecher. Rick, last time around when there was a collective bargaining agreement, there was a provision put in place called the Amnesty Provision. And what it yep. did was it gave the owners the ability to – Pay one player on their team, pay the contract in full, but that contract came off of the salary cap to allow the team to have future flexibility. Do you yep. see uh, a scenario where the amnesty provision comes back into play during these CBA negotiations?
5: Uh, yeah, I think it's a possibility, uh, certainly. But there, I mean, it, it, it's almost it has to be because if they're at, if they're looking at a hard cap and they're looking at reducing the the, the contract so extensively. They're going to have to find a way to get off of some money, and uh, allowing teams to, uh, to, to toss, basically, a, a big, unwieldy contract uh, is, is one of the vehicles that would allow that to happen. Um, so, yes, I, I see that as a, as a very realistic possibility.
3: What about franchise tags? I know there's been a lot of talk, especially after last summer, with Super Friends in Miami. You know, the NFL can franchise tag guys. means your star players, your Peyton Mannings, Tom Brady's, you can slap that tag on them and they can't go anywhere. But you've got to pay them top five at their position. Do you think that David Stern and the NBA might say, you know what, we don't want guys moving around, joining forces, so we have a few super teams and we'd like to have franchise tags going forward? What do you think of that idea?
5: Well, I, I believe they'll put that on the table as a as a bargaining chip. But if they have a hard cap, uh, honestly, I don't see that movement uh, being. Uh, I, I see that movement being greatly restricted as uh, as a result. Um, it, I don't know that you need both a franchise tag and a hard cap because the ability of a guy to go someplace else. Uh, and get a big contract is just it, it 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 won't be there. You won't be able to uh, clear enough cap space uh, to to go after another big ticket.
3: Explain to our audience about the hard cap. I mean, you know, we're at a certain level right now, and the owners want to have a hard cap. Explain to people just what that means, because it would drastically affect how owners are able to sign players going forward.
5: Well, essentially, it means you have X uh, amount of money to spend. Uh, on your salaries and you don't have any ability to go over that. So, uh, if it's 50 million, you have 50 million dollars to spend. Um, right now there are vehicles where you have the bird exception and, uh, the mid-level exception. Uh, you have various ways in which you can sign players, uh, and, uh, and go over what is, what is considered the salary cap and retain guys. Well, in this instance, um, you, you would not be able to do that. Uh, you would not be able to trade and, and acquire guys and take more money on. Um, it would be essentially, because even teams that are over the cap now, they can trade dollar for dollar and they can add pieces. Well, this would be, look, this is the amount of money you have to spend and, uh, and, and there's no going over it. So if you've already spent $45 million, uh, you have $5 million to add another player. You can't do something to change that.
3: So you look at a team like Miami that has all this money tied up in LeBron, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh, I mean, by that logic, either they're going to have to have a lot of minimum guys, or one of those guys has to go.
5: No, that's exactly right. And that's, uh, that, that is That is the one crux of this that I'm not clear on yet, is exactly how the owners are going to implement this. Are they going to grandfather things in? Um, but they're also talking about reducing everybody's salary by 30%, existing contracts. Uh, so... But ultimately, yeah, I would I would expect, you know, very likely uh, that um, some of the teams that have uh, three superstars um, in, in the case of Miami for long term contracts, they would probably be forced to move one of those guys uh, to to reduce their salary.
3: Interesting. Last question. I know that you're based in the Bay Area, probably watching the Kings situation. You know, I could say a million things about that situation, but the thing that has caught my attention more than anything is how ironic is it that Clay Bennett, who moved the Sonics out of Seattle mm-hmm. to Oklahoma City, is the chair of the relocation committee. I just found that very humorous.
5: Yeah, well, he knows <laughs> how to do it. I mean, Yeah, he does.
3: <laughs> Well, I mean, just from uh, that fact alone, you've got to think that I mean, he's coming in with a, a roadmap for the Maloofs or for anyone who wants to move their team, and he's the chair of the relocation committee.
5: Yeah, well, uh, it, look, he, he knows the. I mean, realistically, this is a business proposition, and how do you make uh, how do you make this work for the league? I mean, we, I, I believe, the public perception is, you know, how would you have the the, the fox who uh, uh fox guard the chicken house? But that's that's not the way. That's not the way. the The, the reality is, the chicken house, the NBA owns the chicken house. So, if you want to make sure that if you're moving the Sacramento Kings, that uh, you are doing it in a viable way, a guy who successfully uh, made the move from Seattle, a huge market, to Oklahoma City, a smaller one, uh, and has been able to fiscally make it work. I would say, quite honestly, uh, from a business standpoint, that is the guy you would want run it, running it, because he's going to know how you do it and do it uh, to financial success. And that's really what this is about. I know there's a lot of other emotion in it uh, as far as uh, fans and public are concerned. The NBA doesn't look at it that way. They look at it as a business.
3: I know it's a fluid situation, but what are you hearing about the Kings? Do you think they're going to get to Anaheim or do you think there's going to be enough opposition from other owners, specifically the owners in Los Angeles, to prevent them from making that move?
5: I don't see the Maloof selling the team, and I could see potentially them staying in Sacramento one more year, uh, you know, giving giving the the Kings and the city of Sacramento uh another another year to try to figure something out, out. but look they've been they've been banging on this thing for uh... several years now i just don't know that the uh... the demographic uh... and the financial situation there uh... makes it viable so uh... if if uh... anaheim is a completely different market from la really has to do with the tv rights uh... and the lakers and what they would lose but that kind of stuff can be worked out and uh... and so okay maybe it's not anaheim but i just i don't see a financial model in Sacramento. They have not been able to find a solution. And short of the Malou selling the team, which they say they are not going to do, I just don't see a way in which they make it work in Sacramento.
3: It is an interesting time in the NBA. Rick Buecher, ESPN's NBA senior reporter. Find him on Twitter, at Rick Buecher. Rick, always great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for making the time. You got it, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business
0: Radio. This is Sports Business Radio.
2: And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed today's Best of SBR show and thanks for listening. A reminder, you can download this show on demand via podcast at our website, sportsbusinessradio.com. You'll also see icons there to become our Facebook fan and to follow us on Twitter at SBRadio. All kinds of stuff at sportsbusinessradio.com. You can go back to past interviews as well, so check it out, sportsbusinessradio.com. Also, you can fill out a survey on the website and let us know more about you and where you listen to the show. You'll have a chance to win a segment on a future SBR show. Pretty cool. You can sit right here in the studio and uh, have a segment to promote your business. I want to thank our show staff, Doug Zanger, Jared Meltzer, Josh Blanks, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, Brian and myself will be back next week with an all new show of Sports Business Radio. Have a great day and a great weekend, and thanks for listening to Sports Business Radio. in the parking lot, and all I did was say hello.
3: It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter, and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything Is On The Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com.